Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. We have a beloved co-host today. You have been watching this individual for decades now, decades. One of my all-time favorites, the writer and director of All Cheerleaders Die. One of my favorites, again, in May. Uh, Agnes Bruckner, maybe you saw and fell in love with her in The Woods. Maybe over the last few years, movies like Kindred Spirits and Blood Money. A segment in the sprawling epic anthology, Deathcember, from which I know a few filmmakers. And now today, on the occasion of promoting his new movie, Old Man, writer and director Lucky McKee, welcome to the podcast. What else do the people need to know about you before we get started? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know what else they need to know about me, but thanks for having me, Jordan. <laughs> it's great to be here. I'm excited. I'm excited to have a new movie coming out. Uh, it's it's one I'm really, really proud of, so I can't wait Can't wait to start hearing what people think of it. I was thinking of you uh, recently just from seeing, seeing the blanket uh, like out in the world promotion of the movie Smile. Every time I see Caitlin Stacy's face, I think of you because I think of All Cheerleaders Die, one of my favorite movies ever. And uh, thank you for bringing that and her into my life. So it's like this little reminder constantly of uh, of All Cheerleaders Die, but in the pursuit of promoting the movie Smile. So that's been a nice yeah, bonus. yeah. That's that's been a trip to see her mug popping up all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> she's like she's like haunting me everywhere I go. Remember me, Lucky? Remember. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she's just a star. Now, old man, where, how long ago did you get this in the can uh, versus its its journey to coming out? Was this a COVID production? Was yeah, this a more yeah, recent? This old, old, yeah, old, old man was uh, was made kind of at the height of the, the pandemic terror. Okay. It was pre, pre-vaccination. It was January, February of 2021 uh, that we shot in upstate New York, had to work in a bubble, um, you know, and most of us that were working on the film hadn't really been outside our our, our houses much um, mm-hmm. the previous year. So it was kind of nerve wracking. I mean, just getting on an airplane at that point was, was really, really scary. Um, mm-hmm. But we managed to work in a bubble and we managed to, uh, 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 you know, keep everybody safe. Nobody got sick or anything like that. It was a very, very small production, you know. Um, And it was just like such a joy to be around other artists again. Yeah. After after all that time in isolation, you know. But uh, yeah, it was a joy. Well, and when you say when you say small, I mean, this what we see on screen is essentially Stephen Lang as uh, as an old man. I think he's a nameless old man. And then there is Mark Center as a yeah. man named Joe who happens upon uh, the old man in his cabin. And it is yeah. a two-hander. It is a two-hander with them in the cabin the entire time with Stephen kind of menacing over this guy um, and him being a sort of very recessive and shy personality. But it's clear that both of them have things that they seem to want to be forthcoming about but are obfuscating in themselves. And yeah. personally, even as uh, even as powerful as Zaddy Stephen Lang can be, it's that Mark Center as Joe, the sensitive yeah. guy type, that I was like, no, the, you're the one I don't trust, actually, Mark. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, you're just waiting for something to go south with that guy. Um, yeah, and, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, obviously... The movie is a tremendous showcase for for Stephen Lang and and, yeah. and his his mountain of experience and and his his insane skill set. But it, the the movie to me doesn't work without without the other side of that, and that's Mark. No. And I, I think that there's a really interesting dance, and there's such a contrast between both of their personalities uh, that I mean, it was it was just a true joy to to you know try to capture get get the camera in the best spot to capture what those guys were doing. You know, there there were mm-hmm. days where we were shooting. You know, uh, you know, we'd be doing ten-page runs uh, of just you know dialogue, you yeah, know, uh, and to have actors that can that can do that, but also do that well, and actually at the same time as performing all of that dialogue, being bringing you know amazing physicality, meaningful physicality to what they're mm-hmm. doing. So it was just it was just awesome to behold working with those guys. They're just the best. I would work with both of them in a, again in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, I think this is I, I think talking about this movie and its its trimness, I think is actually a very good segue into the movie and the character that you have brought for us to discuss, which is Harvey yeah. Keitel as Charlie in Martin Scorsese's 1973 movie Mean Streets. Just a yes. real slice of life. Early, like early, I would probably like breakout feature, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Okay, I just come out of confession, right? Right. 
And the priest gives me the usual penance, right? Ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers, ten whatever. Now, you know that next week I'm going to come back and he's going to just give me another ten Hail Marys and another ten Our Fathers and... I mean, you know how I feel about that shit. Those things, they don't mean anything to me. They're just words. Now, that may be okay for the others, but it just doesn't work for me. I mean, if I do something wrong, I just want to pay for it my way. So I do my own penance for my own sins. What do you say, huh? That's all bullshit except the pain, right? What is it about this character, this movie, that in, in all of its sort of streamlined purity, that really landed with you? Well... First and foremost, the movie itself is is told from a very, very personal place, uh, and there, there's a lot of honesty in it. And it is the, the environment in which it takes place is absolutely nothing like where I grew up. In fact, I grew up in, in a very in, in the opposite sort of environment. I grew up in a very rural area. Uh, not a lot of people around didn't have the, you know, didn't even have a gas station, you know, uh, mm-hmm. nearby or stores or anything. We were very rural way out in the middle of the country. But there, the the personal quality he, that Scorsese brings to it, and and uh, also uh, men, the way men act, and the violence in men, and 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 uh, you know, not you know, being a person that isn't necessarily uh, cut from the same cloth as those, just because of the way you came out. I, I wasn't like a manly. I wasn't like a manly little dude when I was growing <laughs> up. You know. I was, kind of fearful and timid and reading my comic books and watching my movies and, and, and writing stories and drawing pictures mm-hmm. and doing all that stuff that was very foreign to kind of all of the men and boys that I, that I, you know, was around and grew up around. Mm-hmm. Um, but I often found myself, uh, in Charlie's position where, uh, I had a lot of Johnny boys in my life. I had people right. that were really wild and really rough. And I, I always kind of, I always kind of somehow ended up being next to people like that and being friends <laughs> with people like that or being related to people like that. And a, a lot of times I would find myself being kind of a mediator for them mm-hmm. and just like the, nor- the, the, nor- the, the, the rest of the world. I don't understand why you're hanging around with a punk kid. I mean, he's the biggest jerk off around. Don't say that, Michael. Don't call him that, will you? What's the matter? It's family things. It's complicated. I can't explain it, all right? <clears throat> but really, he's a good kid. So yeah. I, that, that's, that's a big thing that I identify with that character. And I think that that carries into directing later on because you are a mediator in a lot of ways. You're, you're communicating between all these different departments and mm-hmm. you're dealing with a lot of personalities, some really big, wild personalities, and then some like really hard to penetrate, like really mysterious personalities and trying to get everybody to kind of work with each other and exist together in a harmonious way so you can actually do your work mm-hmm. um, uh, and keep focused. So. That, that's a that's a big part of what I identify with, and and again, just this you know, uh, living in a world where there's this constant threat of violence. Um, mm-hmm. We grew up in an environment feeling that way, mm-hmm. uh, not you know, uh, somewhat at home, a lot at home. Uh, uh, not that I was getting beaten or anything like that, but there was always just kind of this threat hanging in the air that kind of kept mm-hmm. us in line when we were kids. A very different time. Um, you know, and also at school with just, you know, how boys are, you know, mm-hmm. uh, most boys, they, that's, that's the first thing they turn to is, is, is violence when they can't solve a problem. But I would always kind of try to talk my way out of things and, and, mm-hmm. and try to, you know, at the same time that you're, you know, you're afraid of certain kind of monsters or monstrous behaviors I, I've always been a person that, that, that understands or I've tried to understand what the reasoning is underneath that. And, 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 you know, a lot of the projects that I've made over the years kind of focus on, you know, people that we're made to sympathize with that are doing really awful things. <laughs> you know, So I try not to have villains in my <laughs> movies, you know, I try not to have villains in my movies, even if they're doing something bad. I try to, I try to kind of plug an emotional reason under that and kind of try to see, get you to see a person in a three dimensional way, as opposed to just like, you know, a bad guy twirling his mustache or something like that. Just that that sympathy for the devil sort of a thing uh, is kind of is a constant in everything I've made, you know, and, and to not be, not be judgmental, but just try to come to a place of understanding. I don't know if that makes any sense, but <laughs> those, those are the feelings that mean streets kind of, kind of brings up in me. And, and the older I get, the more, and the more, more I can kind of, you know, take a step back from my life and, and analyze it in a way, uh, 
I, I see more and more. I, I relate to it even more now than I did when I was young. I think I was I was relating to it in maybe more of a subconscious way when I was a teenager mm-hmm. and everything. And now that I'm an adult, uh, and I can think back on all those things and think back on the types of situations that I don't put myself in and the type of people that I try not to uh, associate with, you know, because I think we all have a little bit of Charlie in us, but we all have a little bit of that that rebellious kind of punk rock Johnny Boy mm-hmm. in us too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, when you're introduced to Johnny Boy in the film, he's just walking up the street and he throws a bomb in a in a mailbox and it just yeah. explodes for no. For, why did he do that? You know, yeah. he, he's, he's he's just he, chaos. He's a slave to his own impulses, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he's chaos. And I think we all have a little bit of that in us, too. You know, um, some mm-hmm. people obviously much more than others, but. It's really it's it's just like this movie is just like it's it's it's, it's basically following the sort of group of friends and sort of colleagues cohort uh in their life in new york city they're all involved in crime at least sort of directly or tangentially and uh, harvey keitel's charlie is the one who his uncle's kind of a boss in the area and he's a man who who engenders a lot of respect and i a thing that really jumped out at me watching it um for the like thinking about this conversation was like how charlie rarely Charlie, like, he smacks Johnny Boy around a little bit. Like, it's it's a handsy group of guys. But at the same time, Charlie's not a guy starting a fight. Charlie's a guy trying to end a fight. Charlie, like, when there yeah. is, like, a group brawl in, like, a pool hall, Charlie's yeah. got his, like, he's getting thrown on a pool table. He's like, I got a bad hand. I got a bad yeah. hand. Like, yeah. he's yeah. not yeah. somebody he's going to put somebody on the floor. And what I, yeah. what I thought was so interesting about watching that was that he is in an environment where it is incredible to see how he is able to curate his life to get around the fact that he is not necessarily an agent of danger but getting people to think he is to command their respect and also just being so likable and like johnny boy starts criticizing at one point robert de niro's character is like everybody loves charlie everybody loves charlie and that is kind of his currency of the realm and it puts him in the challenging position of having to be everybody's diplomat as yeah. somebody who is like kind of the the reasonable man in an unreasonable world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't understand Charlie here. Charlie likes everybody. Everybody likes Charlie. Enough, and that, enough. That, that fucking politician. Hey, what's your... He's an interesting character also in that, you know, uh, like you said, you know, it's like when it gets to that fight. I mean, Johnny Boy, you know, that fight in the pool hall, which just kind of pops out of nowhere, you know, uh, which mm-hmm. is how violence works a lot of time, especially when you get men grouped together. Uh, it really is. But over and over throughout the film, you also realize that Charlie is kind of, you know, he's he's a witness to all mm-hmm. of this and that, and that it's all this activity that's swirling around him. And, you know, the, the movie kind of starts off him saying that he wants to pay his own penance in his own way in the streets uh, he doesn't want to just go get his, you know, do his hail marys and all our fathers at the church, and he, he wants to, he wants to pay for his sins, you know, uh, in a real kind of real world way. But a lot of the sinning that's going on, and a lot of the bad behavior is 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 the people he's associating with. It's not even yeah. necessarily him. He's kind of a respectable guy in a lot of ways, and yeah. he's trying to make things right and trying to kind of live by the rules that have been presented by him in this world that he grew up in. Yeah, it feels like if he did grow up in your town, he would go to church on Sunday and he'd like run the general store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I think that a lot of people forget when they get really critical of, of you know, some of the paths that people take, whether they get into a life of crime or a life of of uh, kind of what what society uh, at large kind of views as bad behavior is that you have mm. to think of the circumstances with which people w- within which people grow up. You know, to the outside Mm -hmm. world, it's like, wow, they're gangsters, they're breaking the law, they're doing all this kind of stuff, but they're living by kind of their own laws and their own, you know, their own rules within their world. And I think that, you know, to see the impact that something like Mean Streets had on something, you know, 20 years later in in, uh, Minnesota society, you know, Mm -hmm. and seeing, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing the way the Hughes brothers kind of took Mean Streets is kind of like a, a a mold to work off of, but kind mm-hmm. of applying it very, very specifically to the kind of environment that they were familiar with and that, that their people were going through. But, the, you know, it kind of just shows that the, the story that's happening in Mean Streets is happening all over in all sorts of different cultures and all sorts of different ways all around the world. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you what's that? What's that? Uh, that movie from uh, South America with the little boys, the little boy gangs um city of god you know and yes, then you, you look yes. at something like city of god and you're like wow these are these are all the same movie 
in a way. And, and you know, something that I've been working on for the last couple of years is a very personal project about where I grew up. And I kind of realized, oh, wow, I'm kind of working on my mean streets here. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I think that I think it, it's interesting because I think a lot of directors, uh, you know, some of them will make them later in their lives. Like it looks very much like the new Spielberg movie that's about to come up is very much about yeah, you know, the how he grew up and that, that feeling or you, you look at, uh, Quaran's movie, uh, Roma, mm-hmm. all, all these directors, you know, directors that I admire anyway, it's, it's really interesting when they kind of, they'll take that moment a lot, a lot do it in the earlier in their careers. It's also interesting to see these guys that are kind of like, you know, more kind of grown up and adult and, and reflecting back. And I think, I think Inurito is doing that now with Bardot. I think yeah, Inurito yeah, is doing yeah, the yeah, same yeah. thing now. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that, you know, that's really, really important stuff to tap into, you know, if you're mm-hmm. brave enough to do it because it, it, it's, psychoanalysis of yourself <laughs> you know to, to confront that stuff and to kind of put that stuff up on the operating table and and look at it and and you know by doing that and and by communicating that through other artists and other people uh as a director uh you start to really really learn about yourself and learn what makes you tick and i, I just think that's a beautiful thing you know to be able to do that if you if you don't make that that super personal film, I think that anything you make, you have to find a personal way into it. You know, it's like yeah. if I make something like Old Man, I didn't I didn't originate that story, so it didn't start mm-hmm. from a personal place. But but when I read the script, I was able to latch onto something, and that was like, okay, yeah, a very very you know country kind of old cranky old timer. I know those guys. I was raised yeah. by those guys. You know, yeah. I know that voice, and I felt that that writer. Uh, the, the, that that old man's voice, you know, uh, felt true and felt genuine to me, you know, so mm-hmm. that was my way in. So I was pulling from my experiences with my grandfather and my own father and, and mm-hmm. my family in Oklahoma and, you know, uh, people that kind of grew up in the sticks out there. I, I, you know, those were the things I was pulling from, you know, so you can, you know, you can start your, you know, I think it's always a good place for an artist. I don't think that your first film should should uh-huh. be about necessarily those super personal things because you can be so precious that you can, it can really get in the way of, of making something. Uh, but, you know, maybe a movie or two down the line or maybe even like later in your career, if you can tap into that super personal place, I think a filmmaker is going to learn a lot from the self. And I think that they're going to be able to, that's just going to make their work better going forward. I was going to ask, actually, knowing that you're working on a really personal thing like that, if you had attempted that at, like, the Mean Streets phase, like, feature number two, I'm not saying what movie would that would have been, but do you know what tone that would have taken that might be different from, like, would it be more romantic than your one that you're doing now? Would it be more angry than the one you're doing now? Like, how do how would those tones be different 20 years ago lucky versus now lucky working on that. Yeah, what's 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 interesting about that is that the the thing that I'm working on now and I've almost got the script where I wanted it's still a little bit long I got to cut it down. It is this it it started out uh, I wrote it when I was 20 years old. I wrote it it was the script oh. I wrote after I wrote May and I always intended for it to be my second film and I really wanted it to be my second film and I made okay. May and I had a pretty, you know, it was a very intense ex- experience making my first film. And May itself is really, really personal, but it's it's mm-hmm. it's like taking personal stuff and kind of putting it into a fairy tale space. It mm-hmm. wasn't. It has a, there's a lot of masks over everything, right? Mm-hmm. And and this this next thing that I was going to make, uh, it's called Crimson and Clover, uh, was was going to be me, go, you know, like really, really kind of confronting where I grew up and and what I came from uh, in rural Northern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I wrote it when I was 20 years old, I think I was still really bitter about the way I grew up because, uh, you know, by that, by the time I wrote it, I had had you know, some experience out in the world. I lived in Los Angeles and went to USC. Mm-hmm. I was meeting people from all over the world and going, wait a second, you know, th- th- this, this world is so much bigger and so much yeah, exciting than what I was led, the, than what I was led to believe growing up, <laughs> you know, because it was so isolated growing up. So there was a lot of judgment in it and there was a lot of, 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 of bitterness and, and mm-hmm. a lot of anger and, and, and a lot of things that were kind of getting in the way of showing the characters in an honest way uh, uh, in a sympathetic or empathetic sort of a way. So, you know, picking that, you know, I had a friend that said, hey, do you still want to do that? They're in a position to help me get it made. Uh, so I dug it back out and I, I'd, I'd kind of 
kind of kept it stuffed away because I, you know, May was such a personal film. I had a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, dealing with somebody else's money and producers and just LA in general was like really <laughs> shocking to me making May for the first time. So yeah. after I made it, I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to try to get a job, like a director for hire job. I'm going to put that in my pocket until I get in a position where I can make it, you know, in the precious sort of kind of protected way that it needs to be made. It. And it, it ended up sitting in a drawer for you know, over 20 years, you know, Wow. now that I'm looking at it again, I've lived so much more life and I'm able to kind of look <laughs> at everything from a much better perspective. And, and, and the thing that I keep trying to find in my own films and that, that, that's, it's, it's a thing that I've pulled from Scorsese's films and, and he's so consistent with this is that, yes, he will show awful people doing awful things. He will, mm -hmm. he'll show people from all different walks of life, all different cultures, but there's never, I never feel him as a filmmaker judging his subjects. I right, feel like right. he's showing something, he's displaying it, you know, it's like, you don't even necessarily, he's, he, and he's not trying to cram a message down your throat, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's, this almost like observant, like, like documentary sort of, you know, reality to everything uh, that's, that's very observational. But again, it's not, it's not telling you how to feel about these people and it's not judging them in any way. So that's something that I've, I've tried to chase since I started and I'm trying to get better at, at, at chasing, like, how do you capture that, that feeling without, uh, without just coming off as a judgmental asshole, <laughs> like, like, like in your stories, you know? It's time for a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk more with Lucky McKee about Mean Streets, Kaitel, and finding himself in his own movies. Then I'll have one quick thing before I go about me! And I'm going to do a little circle back update on the feature-length anthology film I have been producing on called Give Me an A!, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about its red carpet premiere because this is my party and I will do that if I want to. So stick around to the end, if you please. Her Majesty served Great Britain and the Commonwealth loyally for over 70 years. And while, of course, we feel a profound sadness... We must remember she lived a long life and died in such a way that I think many of us would want for ourselves. She was at home, surrounded by her family. And of course, she was listening to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is a multi-award winning comedy podcast and you can find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, hi, I'm looking for a movie. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, there's that new foreign film with the time travel. There's an amazing documentary about queer history on streaming. Have I told you about this classic where giant robots fight? Or there's that one that most critics hated, but I thought was actually pretty good. Ooh, I know. The one with the huge car chase, and then there's that scene where... The, the car, car jumps, jumps over, over the submarine. submarine. Wow, who are you eclectic movie experts? Well, I'm Ify Wadiway. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Alonzo Duraldi. And together, we host the movie podcast, Maximum film new episodes every week on maximumfun.org and you actually just walked into our recording booth oh weird sorry i thought this was a video store you seem like a lady with a lot of problems Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm chatting with director Lucky McKee about Harvey Keitel as Charlie in Mean Streets. Lucky's new film, Old Man, showcases two male characters, but many of his projects, including the Masters of Horror installment Sick Girl, have focused on female protagonists. See also May, see also The Woods, etc., etc. Let's get back to that with Lucky. I wanted to hear if you had any if you had anything to say about, you know, the the goal of emotional honesty and being like, you know, when with screenplays that you've written yourself works like All Your Leaders Die, May, um, Sick Girl. These are movies where the the protagonists, they were kind of outliers, honestly, from the, the movies uh, that were coming out around the era in genre where there was a lot of queerness and there and they were women who were not sort of 
uh, built on to hew along the sort of final girl architecture, but yeah. were more fleshed out heroines than women had the opportunities to be at the time. And I wanted to hear from you about imbuing your own honesty into characters that did not resemble you and being yeah. able to translate honestly through these avatars, perhaps. Like, why why were these the ones that you were drawn to to create to create art through and tell your stories through? Gosh, I, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I, you know, it, it's as, as simple as saying that, you know, when I started making short films in film school, I, I you know, found myself writing stories starring starring women and, and you know, ha, you know, found myself having like a good rapport with actor with with, uh, you know, women actors. And, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it just kind of went from there. Um mm. I, you know, I, I grew up in a very isolated environment and most of my days were, you know, just me and my mom and my sister. My dad was off mm. welding somewhere, you know, working 80 hours a week. So, you know, a lot of, you know, I felt really comfortable in all of my, in, in my family, all of my cousins and everything. I didn't have any boy cousins. It was just always around <laughs> women, you know, my aunts and my cousins. And it was, it was always always a bunch of women and, and, and girls and, and, and then me, just like the weirdo kind of <laughs> nerd kid in the corner. So that's just, I guess that's just how I, who I felt comfortable communicating with and being like really mm-hmm. open about, about, uh, uh, about very emotional things. I was a very emotional kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it kind of, kind of naturally started happening that way. And then, you know, it's like you get to something like sick girl. I mean, I didn't start sick girl out, uh, you know, trying to, to make something about a same-sex couple or, or any of mm-hmm. that stuff. It's a, you know, the Mick Garris gave me this script. It was, it was a story about a guy that fall a guy scientist who falls in love with this artist girl and, and this whole bug situation happens or whatever. But, <laughs> the whole bug situation. And when they, when, when they, when they brought me on, I, I really wanted to work with, with Angela again. I wanted her to be my lead character. So yeah. with their blessing, they let me rewrite the, you know, they let me rewrite the script and I, I just changed that main character and a woman into a, into a woman. And okay, now it's a woman falling in love, in, in love with another woman. I didn't think there was mm-hmm. anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, or I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think I was, I didn't think I was breaking any new ground either but you're right there was I guess there wasn't really a lot of stuff like that being made at the time especially on like a high profile show like Masters of Horror or anything but Definitely. you know nobody ever got in my way you know uh no, nobody ever nobody hear. ever questioned it questioned it um and and you know and in depicting that relationship I was like okay I you know I I always pull from the most personal place I can so it's like okay mm-hmm. there's this nerdy scientist that's a good you know uh, <laughs> that's a good counterpart to me is this this nerdy like film guy that's trying to make his way in the you know in the world and trying to have mm-hmm. relationships and trying to do all that stuff so I just put that stuff into that character I didn't think it mattered if she was a man or a woman um mm-hmm. but you know be, because it's it's two women there you know it did present the opportunity of of uh their landlady being kind of a, a representative of of somebody that would see that as foreign or yeah. or wrong or or all that kind of stuff so i felt like i had to i had to deal with that in a certain way but it didn't you know it all started just because i wanted to work with angela it wasn't because i was trying <laughs> to like make some amazing you know like cutting edge social statement or something like that Listen, an answer that revolves around a testament to the power of Angela Bettis works great for me. Yeah, that works yeah. great for me. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, it was it was instilled in me early on in film school by this great professor I had, Todd Boyd, who uh, I took an African American cinema class and a race class and gender and American film class and uh, movies uh, class about uh, films that take place in Los Angeles was just that he he said when we get to a point in the business where. Uh, a, a, a black man can be a lead in a film and it has, and, and nothing in the film has anything to do with his race. Right. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's, that's when we're making real progress, you know? Yeah. So, so I always kind of tried to carry that into anything that I made is just, you know, like present these things that are normal and, and are okay, are okay. And, and, yeah. and represent, you know, the, the wide variety of people and, and people's interests and desires and all that stuff. But to present that as the normal thing that it is, you know, as opposed to calling attention to it or, 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 or mm-hmm. you know, trying to cram some message down anybody's throat about, you know, right and wrong and you should think this way or that way. It's just like, no, just just show it for what it is and, 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 and celebrate that. That's always been kind of something that I've tried to stay true to as I've gone through making stuff. 
Well, I will. I, I will like in in regards to like the 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 truth of performance. I will. I will go back to Harvey Keitel, and you you said in the. Yeah. Uh, sort of preamble to to doing this, you were that you that Harvey Keitel was a par- performer that had like spoke to you sort of throughout his career that you were a big like. What is it about Harvey Keitel that you find specifically as something that really captivates you? He, well, I mean, he's obviously you know found himself under the microscope of so many of my favorite filmmakers. I mean, I think that's <laughs> that's, that's a big one. I mean. I think maybe the first thing I saw Keitel in that I that I registered who Harvey Keitel was was Reservoir Dogs when I was about mm. 16 years old. And uh, what a movie to watch at 16. <laughs> but, but 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 the first time I I saw Reservoir Dogs the acting was so was so realistic and so believable that that in terms of a movie and what I mm-hmm. thought a movie was as a kid mm-hmm. uh I thought it was. I thought it was fake. I thought it was. I thought it was like it, it wasn't. It wasn't what a movie was supposed to be. It was like it was too natural or something like that, and uh-huh. it almost felt like phony to me in a certain way. And then, but I, I, you know, I was really enamored. You know, especially being sixteen years old. I mean, I loved violence in movies. I it was. It was some sort of like expression of maybe like feelings I had bottled up inside me or something mm-hmm. like something about violent movies when you're a young man. Uh, you know, like Clockwork Orange or Reservoir Dogs or, or mm-hmm. Taxi Driver or something, it really, really speaks to you when you're a young man because there's that caveman inside all of us, I guess. <laughs> um, but the more and more I kind of looked at Reservoir Dogs and, and and studied it and, you know, watched it over and over again incessantly, I kind of realized, you know, the reason I'm responding to this movie and the reason I'm watching it over and over again is because these men are so much like the men that I grew up around, right. you know, the, 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 the steel workers and the, the guys in the junkyards and, and, you know, the casual racism and the, you know, all of the, all the, the, this film was so honest about that. And I just wasn't yeah. used to seeing that in the film, you know, and then, you know, I, I discovered Goodfellas before that and it had kind of, it had a similar impact for similar reasons. It was like, wow, okay, you can be honest about that stuff. I thought, I thought you mm-hmm. couldn't talk about a lot of that stuff or you couldn't show right. how, how men behave, um, especially white men, which was my whole experience growing up. Mm-hmm. And then Reservoir Dogs leads me back to, you know, and Goodfellas lead me back to Mean Streets and I see Mean mm-hmm. Streets. I'm like, hmm, wow, this is, this is really interesting. And then, uh, you know, high school English teacher, you know, would took me under his wing and was teaching me about all these great films from the past. And then he would also take me, drive me an hour to the city to see art house films. And he took me to see the piano Mm-hmm. And and I saw this thing that looked and felt like the these these dark Grimm's fairy tales that I was really into and mm-hmm. just had this like real quality to it and this frankness about sexuality and all that stuff and it was like Kaitel just kept popping up in these things and then then Bad Lieutenant comes out and it's like what the hell I'd never seen anything like Bad Lieutenant before <laughs> you know it scared the shit out of me. Uh, but also really pulled me in and was really, really fascinating. Um, so it's like he's he's always been there and, and continues to be throughout the years. He just makes really smart choices, and he's he's fearless in a way that, that a lot of actors aren't. Scumbag. Come on, don't call me no scumbag. You can't pay what you owe. As soon as the game shows up, you bang, you want to jump in. For how much? Why don't you use your head? Hey, 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 hold, hey, come on with you guys, we're friends. What the fuck is wrong with you? Me, he's the one. You too. All right, enough. Hey, hit each other with the fucking chairs, why don't you? Come on, go eat now. All right, enough, enough. You want to know better than that. I'm sorry. I had a lot of ideas of, of stuff to, to, you know, suggestions to make to you for stuff we could talk about. But Mean Streets was just really kind of calling out to me because of this idea of, of him being a mediator and him being kind of in a world that maybe <laughs> that, that he's, he's not necessarily acting like everybody around them. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I just really identified with him because he feels like an outsider, even though he's very plugged in in the world he's in. You know, you can tell he's a lot he's thinking a lot deeper about everything than everybody else around him, you know, maybe too deeply. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I love in Mean Streets when like he kind of so, like he's been voiceovering intermittently throughout 
the movie, and then he suddenly breaks the fourth wall in yeah. the car and they start with laughing the people, at him. and they're like, yeah. "What the yeah. fuck are you doing?" <laughs> like, I know, I know. Who are you talking yeah. to? Yeah, yeah. Because nobody else, nobody else is 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 thinking that way. You know, it's almost like thinking too much can get you into trouble. You know. <laughs> I guess you could safely say that things haven't gone so well tonight. But I'm trying, Lord. I'm trying. What are you talking to yourself? <laughs> and then, and, and, you know, the, the other thing with his character is that he's, you know, he's always apologizing for somebody else. And I found myself doing yeah. that a lot in my life growing up. It's like, oh, well, you know, you don't understand. You know, I try to make people understand why somebody would say that asshole thing or do that yeah. asshole thing or, or get drunk and get violent or wave a gun around or this and that. It's, it's, it's like... I grew up around all that kind of behavior and, and I found myself, you know, I realized it took me, it took me a long time to realize that I don't have to apologize <laughs> for uh-huh. other people's stuff, you know? Yes. Um, but still, even, even people that act really bad and do all those bad things, it's always about trying to like come to like some kind of understanding just for my own peace of mind that why, why, why would you, why would somebody behave like that? <laughs> You know, and then trying, you know, just trying to always see the other side of things, you know. I in in like like you'd mentioned earlier, like the, you know, even watching like experiencing the performance feels like a different kind of or or perhaps more acutely so resonant with you now than even when it did when it was intense when you first saw it. And I wondered what like what do you find is the sort of legacy that when you watch these things now, what is sort of like the evolving impression of like these kind of tomes of violence like at times like a, a reservoir dogs uh a mean streets uh, like these movies that are very rooted in, in as you've said like the violence of men how do you find is it like a a sharper is it a sharper hit as you get older when you watch these things like do you oh, yeah. notice more than you did when you were younger i'm so much more sensitive to that kind of stuff now especially being a dad you know i'm feeling kid, it as have, i get have, older have, too have, have somebody to protect it's like i can only take so much uh, at this point and uh uh that that really really coincided with becoming a dad uh i think for me uh, mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, whoa, all of a sudden, you know, I have limits <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to what I can take. And I, I was very much not like that when I, when I was younger. Um, because, you know, I think the older you get too, you, you realize the impression that you can make on other people and, uh-huh. and, and, uh, and, and some people that maybe don't have the best guidance can, can misinterpret something. And, you know, it's like, you think on, on Kubrick's decision to pull Clockwork Orange from theaters in, in the UK. When when I was younger, I was like, well, fuck that. You know what I mean? Like he made this beautiful mm-hmm. piece of art and it's it's honest about how violent young men are and all, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, he shouldn't have had to censor himself in that way, but the movie was causing violence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. it was, it was kids were taking the wrong messages from it and they were going out and, and like hurting people in the real world, you know? And I, now that I'm a dad and now that I'm older, I can kind of, I can understand, you know, I can understand why he did that, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. It, we definitely soften as we can. Well, I'm, anyway, I soften as I've softened as I've gotten older. I don't even think I could make a movie like the woman now, it, it, you mm. know, considering, you know, where I'm at in my life and, 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 you know, what places I kind of want to go with my work and kind of what kind of energy I want to put out there. Cause the woman is a very angry movie. It's yeah. angry about a lot of things that we should be angry about, but, but do I want to live in that space for two years of my life? I don't think so. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so well, yeah. then my, th- this, I, I have to like come to my, my wrap up question, which oh, would then oh. I think be, as somebody who has placed a lot of emphasis in their life and in their work on finding the perspective and presenting the, like a complete perspective in the sense of like being able to find the understanding of those who do wrong, even if you're not out advocating for it, just being like, but here's like the picture of this person knowing about like the sort of softening that you've undergone and like yeah. not not necessarily wanting to like live in the headspace of making a movie like the woman, in a, um, yeah. you know, at this point in your career. Where do you find have the limits of your empathy with 
presenting those points of view of those who have done wrong, has those changed? Or what do you find is your responsibility to presenting those kinds of points of view to characters that might be harder for you to stomach now even than they were before? How does yeah. that how does that uh work for you within like creating in the way that you have for so long? Uh I think it's a case by case basis. I, I mean I know that sure. I'm a lot I I, I find myself uh second guessing a lot of stuff I sit down to work work on now when I didn't second guess anything when I was really young it kind of just came out but I I, I know that we're we're living you know we're living in a very very kind of very very sensitive kind of uh cultural landscape now uh, mm-hmm. so you have to you know but I don't think that's a bad thing to to really really think about what you're putting out there <laughs> you know and and, and I, I I'm agree. almost embarrassed about some of the notions or ideas that you know I didn't think I didn't really think about that that kind of impact it would have you know um but it's just a case by case basis you know and you kind of I think yeah. that in this work, you just, you go where the wind takes you and you go, you know, and, and you surround yourself with, with people that keep you in check. You know, it's like, I've got, uh, you know, obviously my, my wife being a number one, but then, you know, also, you know, friends like Walter Chaw and friends like you and, and, and mm-hmm. friends like, uh, you know, my, my editor, Zach Passero. And, you know, you, you, you surround yourself with people that can kind of keep you in check, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just having bullshit, this conversation last night know? with a friend, so I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but you know, but then, like this year, I saw Alex Garland's new film, Men, and it just, mm-hmm. it just devastated me. And and it was so, so brave and so like artistically bold, and just, it really is my favorite film in, in the last few years. It just, mm. it, it struck me so deeply. It also, you know, I, I'd had another piece of material. Uh, that I'd been kind of avoiding for a few years. I was like, I don't think I can. I don't think I can go there now. And, and yeah, you know, because this, you know, this piece of material is really dicey. It's a real tightrope. It could really, really piss people off. Mm. Uh, and I got afraid of it. Uh, but when I watched Men, I was like, okay, I'm seeing him go into a lot of these, you know, these spaces, and I'm he, he doesn't seem to be afraid of it. And it kind of reminded mm-hmm. me that, like, oh yeah, well. I can make that movie because I'm not a fucking scumbag. <laughs> you know, it's like, 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 and I, and I don't, that and I don't, associate, and, I, and I don't associate with scumbags. And it's like, yes, this, this is something that I think is kind of, you know, the, this, the subject matter is something that's important to talk about. Yes, it's dicey, but mm-hmm. those are, those are the things that are kind of worthy of discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, I shouldn't be afraid of that. So, so yeah, the next thing I make might, might kind of upset people a little bit, but, um, okay. But uh, I'm trying not to be afraid of that because I have friends like, you know, like, like you and like, like all, all the friends that I have around me. I really listen to what all of you all, what you all are putting out there and mm-hmm. how you're looking at things and analyzing things. And I hear all of your voices when I'm when I'm working on my own stuff. And I think that's a pretty good guide, you know. I I appreciate you because like it's such an interesting part of the conversation with like talking to any filmmaker the answer can be different like what role does conversation in that way play in your creative pride and like the answer go from like I have to block out all the noise to like no I want to synthesize these things in my orbit and really understand how they contribute to my complete picture like and I I like hearing that you're somebody who wants to synthesize the points of view because I I think it makes it allows us to be very a lot of very interesting when we understand that especially as we get older when like in in like the worst person in the world uh you know that that movie coming out last year like one of the characters in it like he talks toward the end of his life about like how like i'm just listening to the old music that i listened to when i was a kid and like i don't want anything new and i i feel like i'm guilty about retreating into the things that are just familiar to me and i think that's unless one works against the instinct to retreat to the things that are comfortable as they get older, it takes active participation in your own growth to continue welcoming in signal. Absolutely. And And that, that is one, that is something I think about all the time because I'm, I see it reflected in, in my parents' generation. I see this narrowing 
and this like I like what I like and if you know uh, you know the new stuff like fuck that you know what I mean and, uh-huh. and, and I like what I like and fuck everything else and, and it just get, they're, they're, the thinking gets so narrow and it's like I don't want to be like I don't want to be like that I, I want to go you know I want to be opening up constantly and it's like oh wow yeah. that's a point of view I never considered and th- especially when you grow up in a very isolated rural environment but racism, sexism, homophobia, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, just as the what you think is the normal world. And then, you know, the more you get away from that and the more you see the rest of the world and more you listen and keep yourself open, you know, and it's, it's also with film. It's like, no, I'm not going to just sit and like watch like a certain type of film. It's like I constantly uh-huh. want to be challenged. I want to be opening up to, you know, it's like during the pandemic, I was like, I've never really dove into the silent era and I really mm. dove in and, and it, you know, it felt like homework at first. And then I got hooked on it. And then I was just, you know, discovered some filmmakers from that time that became favorite filmmakers of mine. And it really, really opened me up and it made me a better filmmaker, you know. Uh, uh-huh. And that, 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 that same thing goes for the new stuff that's coming out. And it's like when we have great people like you and a lot of the great people out there that are talking about film and discussing this stuff and analyzing it and talking about what it means to them personally and how, you know, where they find connections, it's like that, that stuff all just makes us all better, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so you, you have to just, you have to keep your ears open. You can't get these blinders on as you get older. I think about it all. I think about that all the time. You know, I try really, really hard to stay open. I am so appreciative that you were open to coming on and having this conversation <laughs> with me. Lucky McKee, a certified not a fucking douchebag who <laughs> understands the star power of Angela Bettis and Caitlin Stacy. So it's really end to end, you guys. A guy who understands, a filmmaker who understands that and who also can talk to you chapter and verse about the filmography of Martin Scorsese. That! <laughs> that is a filmmaker's perspective. Lucky, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Jordan. It's always Always great to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you so much to Lucky McKee, a charming man. I just so enjoy the chance at any time we get to talk to him. Old Man came out this past weekend, and it may be playing in a theater near you, but it is definitely streaming on any number of VOD platforms just a few clicks away. So please check it out. Support independent cinema. Support Stephen Lang in a trapdoor onesie. You can't. I rewatched Avatar recently, and he's the baddie in that. And and watching the two back to back Stephen Langs taking in him in trapdoor jammies and like hulked out bad guy Stephen Lang. He he's he contains multitudes. And now. For that one quick thing before I go, uh, you have heard me speak before about the anthology feature that I have been a producer on called Give Me an A, that um, it is 17 shorts by 17 women um, in Los Angeles and Atlanta, and every short is connected back to the theme of bodily autonomy and the entire thing. Uh, We started shooting in like the last week of July. It is now the middle of October. We have played three festivals in the past three weeks. That means we got an entire feature out the door in under three months. <laughs> it has been as insane as you could imagine that unbelievable timeline being. We played Digital Fantastic Fest. We were at Brooklyn Horror uh, this very week and then uh, or last week, sorry. And then uh, Monday, this Monday that just happened, we had our red carpet premiere here in Los Angeles, which was great and so special because there's so many of the filmmakers are here. So we 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 sold out of uh, one theater. So they put us in the biggest theater and we sold that out, too. And it was a magical night. And I want to talk about it because as uh, one of our uh, fellow producers, Giselle Gilbert, pointed out in the Q&A, it took 700 people have worked on this project. 700 people have helped make Give Me an A. And uh, not all but most have worked either for free or at a steeply discounted rate. We have done this through pure determination um, of the people making it, of generosity of the people who have helped us. 
working on a timeline absolutely no one would suggest or ever advocate for. But everybody, once we locked in and we're, we were doing it, led by our incredible fearless producer, executive producer, Natasha Holovy, uh, we made it happen. We made it real. People say, get out there and make something. Like, that's like the convention. That's like the thing in Hollywood. It's like a platitude. It's what, like, a contingent of, like, hang in their kitten platitude inspiration like filmmaker will tell you on Twitter get out there and make your own thing yeah get out there and make something but like it does cost money and it does cost time and it does cost people's like generosity and and care and effort and single-minded determination to make something real like yes go out there and make something but know that it is going to be hard and like you will have to scrap and you will have to scrape. And the notion of go make something I think is often painted as this sort of like romantic one size fits all advice that it elides over how much hard work from how many people has to come through to make something real. So embrace that. Yes, go make stuff, but embrace that knowledge that it's going to be hard, but that if you can fucking pull it off, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> And seeing, having the honor of, you know, event sci-fi movies open on streaming now, you guys. So the fact that we had the luxury of watching this in festival context, having the luxury of watching Give Me an A on a big screen um, is something that is not lost on me. And I'm just so overwhelmed with gratitude uh, for everyone that made this possible. All 700 of the people that made this possible and for the opportunity to do it. And as you just heard us discuss in this conversation with Lucky, like working with good people, collaborating with good people, knowing what matters to you and prioritizing that and and not letting the shitty people in. That goes that that doesn't just go a long way. It goes all the way. So and that's what we did. We were good people who made something good, and now it exists in the world, and it's going to continue on its little journey, and I hope to one day be able to tell you details about what video on-demand service you can watch Give Me an A on. Um, but yeah, if you're going to be at FilmQuest, any filmmakers out there, if you're going to be at FilmQuest in November, you can see Give Me an A there, and you really should. Uh, but yeah, that's my that's my personally emotional. I was literally feeling seen with my fucking name in the credits last night on a big movie screen. So I'm feeling great about that. Um, and that is the happy note that we will go out at. We got a, we got a nice filmmaker here today. We got nice filmmaking news for me. We're, we're doing nice filmmaking things on the Feeling Scene podcast. And that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter at Feeling Scene Pod or send us an email at Feeling Scene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jorker on Twitter, J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.